Hi, we're here at RMIT today with best-selling author Graham Simpson. Graham wrote The Rosie Project, which was an international publishing phenomenon. Now Graham returns with a highly anticipated sequel, The Rosie Effect. With The Wife Project complete, Don settles happily into a new job and married life in New York. But it's not long before certain events are taken out of his control and it's time to embark on a new project. Graham, welcome. Hi. And would you like to introduce us to the Rosie Effect? Well, I think you've done a pretty good job of doing it. Um, look, I think the main thing about the Rosie Effect was I didn't plan to write a sequel to the Rosie Project. So I tied up all the loose ends, wrapped it up in a bundle and said, here it is, as you do with romantic comedies, the job is done. Um, and I'd actually started work on another book uh, when I was out to dinner with my RMIT writers group or group of people who'd all studied RMIT together or ex-RMIT now and we were celebrating the pregnancy of one of them and one said you know you've got to give Mark the husband of the person who was pregnant you've got to give Mark your new father's talk the talk and it just struck me that Don Tillman, the hero of the Rosie Project, needed to hear that talk as well. And suddenly I had a way in to, um, to, a, to a sequel. So I, I dropped what I was working on and, uh, and got, got to work on a sequel. Fantastic. So that was the reason why you wrote the sequel. How difficult was it to follow up on the success of The Rosie Effect? Look, look there's always going to be some, some pressure about writing a second novel, and I think particularly a sequel, that uh, you sort of feel the critics are all waiting with the, the knives unsheathed, ready to say, not as good as the first one, not as fresh, all those sorts of things. But look, putting that aside, because I did put it aside, um, the actual process of writing was vastly easier. And and I I know that some well, I as I said I put the pressure aside, and the first book, um, the Rosie the Rosie Project was in fact a a first book. And when you do something for the first time, you're learning all the way. You're making a lot of mistakes. You're throwing a lot of things away. Coming to this second book, um, I had a chance to reflect on what had worked and what had not worked. And basically, I did more of the things that worked and as little as possible of, of the things that hadn't worked. And I guess because this is an RMIT interview, I, I, would, I would stress that having a, a formal, a theoretical framework to work with is tremendously important in doing that. You can't just, if you just have the sort of vague idea that some stuff worked and some stuff didn't, you're not going to learn from it. But if you're able to put a name to the things that worked, you know, don't do this, do this, real names on it, which is what a theoretical framework gives you, it's much, much easier to actually take that tacit sort of knowledge and turn it into something that you can really use. Well, you touched on it being an RMIT interview, so can you just elaborate a little bit on how the being involved in the professional screenwriting and professional writing and editing studies at RMIT had played a part in your role as, as an author now? Well, it's not just playing a part. Without the studies at RMIT, it wouldn't have happened for me. Um, I'm, I'm somebody who does learn from um, instruction and frameworks as well as just practice. I was coming at this pretty late in life without a lot of practice. I was 50 when I enrolled in the course at, at RMIT, in the screenwriting course. And you know, that was the way of fast-tracking to getting there. Mm -hmm. And what, what the course gave me, I guess it gave me... Um, Obviously, the, the, the actual knowledge, 
but it gave me discipline. You have to put assignments in. You have to get stuff done. It gave me um, peer review and an expert review of what I was getting. It gave me feedback um, on what I was doing. And it gave me a lot of the practicalities in terms of understanding how the industry worked. So um, I, I know without that, um, the Rosie Project and certainly the Rosie Effect would not have happened. It's, it's not unusual for people to reach a certain point in their career and decide to do a, a U-turn, a career U-turn to speak. What led to that for you? Okay, um, I did a slightly crazy thing. I, I read a book um, by Joe Queenan, the American film critic, called The Unkindest Cut, which was about him making a no-budget, a very low-budget um, feature-length film. And I decided to emulate him using... you know domestic video camera and all that and my wife and I primarily but a whole bunch of friends around us and family and so forth made this feature film shot on video it took us about nine months or so and it was pretty awful but um, somebody in the industry in fact it was was Sue Maslin uh, the uh, well-known Australian film producer saw it and whether she meant it or not said a couple of nice things about the screenplay and this sort of this little flame was lit and it, I got it in my head that maybe I could be a screenwriter. Um, and I'd always wanted to tell stories. I guess I'd had in the back of my mind I wanted to be a novelist, but didn't think I could do it. Um, and that led to me selling my business, um, which was quite lucrative at the time. But selling the business, um, going back to sort of a part-time freelancing role and enrolling at RMIT. Fantastic. Now, I know we talked a little bit about what happens between Don and Rosie in New York. Can you elaborate a little bit more without giving too much away? Well, okay. Um, I guess I didn't feel there should be sequels to romantic comedies. Um, I mean, I know that uh, Helen Fielding did it with Bridget Jones, um, but she did it in a very, I would say, artificial way, and she splits up the couple and then lets them sort of find their way their way back together. And I would say um, whether or not you agree with that as a, as a technique, I mean, the book sold very, very well, got made into a film. She's done it. it you can't do it again. And, and my feeling was, as I say, it was wrapped up and that and I wanted to write romantic comedies next. But... Then once I found a way in, I realised that the heart of the story was not its structure as a romantic comedy, but my character, Don Tillman, um, who is, I think we all agree, somewhere on the autism spectrum, and that it would be interesting to throw more challenges at him. They just had to be as serious as the courtship or finding a partner challenge. And I felt I would throw fatherhood at him, which is um, another area where someone with very poor social skills is going to be challenged and wonder whether he's up to the task. So the, the dramatic question, if you like, for the Rosie Project was really, can Don Tillman cut it in a, in a relationship? And the question for the Rosie effect is, can he cut it not just as a father but also maintain the relationship that, that brought him into the situation in the first place. Some might say that's the most difficult relationship of all. Now, the Rosie books are classic <clears throat> screwball comedy to me, rom-com slash screwball. They have a set formula, and because you seem to have a scientific mind yourself, did you look at that formula and go with specific steps, or how rigid were you with your writing? Okay, the, the first book, The Rosie Project, is very consciously a romantic comedy. I mean, I even have a little bit of a nod to it by, by naming real romantic comedies in the book. And at the end, he says, I felt like I'd be living in a romantic comedy. Words to that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm conscious of it. Um, and, but remember that a rom romantic comedy is actually a film genre. It's not actually a genre you see all that often in that structure in books. Um, yeah. Again, you think Bridget Jones's Diary and you think, Ooh. And, and and what else? You can name a ton of films, but not so many books. But... Yes, it absolutely follows the genre. It actually 
absolutely follows the structure of romantic comedy, and I make no apologies for that. Although I was giving a talk in the UK at a university, and somebody put up their hand at the end, these were literature students, and says, aren't you disgusted with yourself that you wrote genre? <laughs> well, yeah, we can, yeah, this is just a framework. You can put all sorts of things. It's a bit like saying to someone, aren't you disgusted with yourself that you painted in oils or you used watercolours? Or it's, it's a medium, it's a structure, it's what you put on top of that structure. And you can have quite profound themes, if you want to, on top of a romantic comedy structure. The second book um, follows, I guess, a broad hero's journey story structure, but it's not nearly as tied to something that we would recognise as a genre. What elements of that structure drew you to that genre? Well, look, I, I sort of went backwards as a way in the sense that I didn't start off thinking I had a story without thinking of genre at all. In fact, it was a dramatic story. It was a dramatic love story, the very earliest version of The Rosie Project. And then I realised that what I had on my hands was a comedy. And as I looked at the structure that I had come up with myself, I realised that it was pretty close to a classic romantic comedy structure. Um, so I went to the books on romantic comedy, and I learnt and watched the films, I watched the classic films, and I tried to learn what I could, because you say, well, why does the classic structure include this? Hey, that's pretty good, there's a reason for that. And can I ring the changes on that? Can I do it in a novel way? So um, so that's what I was doing. So I did yeah, lots of theoretical work, both um, you know, reading the books, um, but also I went back and watched a lot of romantic comedies, and you mentioned the word screwball, um, yeah, the predecessor of the modern romantic comedy is the screwball comedy, going right back to the 1930s, even arguably the late 1920s. Films like Bringing Up Baby, The Philadelphia Story, later The Apartment. Um, and I watched those, and they probably have got as much... They've influenced the comedy in The Rosie Project, whereas the structure is a more modern structure. Now, The Rosie Project was a screenplay before it became mm. a novel. And I believe the screen rights have been optioned to Sony Pictures in the US, is that correct? That's, that's absolutely right. What is happening with that now? And you're involved with that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I got the gig writing the screenplay, which was nice. Well, I had a screenplay in my back pocket. So I went back to the book and I yeah, fed into the screenplay what I'd learned from writing the book. Um, and then I talked to the and Sony Pictures you know, actually retained me to write it. Um, and I worked, I think, very productively with their producers to improve it. Um, and they've now paid me, and it's in their hands, um, and we shall see. Um, I think we've just marked our 15th or 16th week on the New York Times bestseller list with a paperback, and that's the sort of thing that will sway them to actually make the movie. So it hasn't started as yet? It hasn't started yet, hasn't been greenlit at this stage. We're just waiting for that to happen. Um, these things do take time, um, but as I say, every week it's on the New York Times bestseller list um, is increases the chances that it's going to be made. So you went from screenplay to book and now back to screenplay. Yep. What was that process like? Well, um, going from screenplay to book was remarkably swift. I'm not supposed to say that because the, the literary people say, oh, you know, you're saying that all you've got is a, is a sort of a rehashed screenplay. But the, the point was, I, with the, the main thing with, with the book was that I was putting Don, my character's inner world, on the page. And that I'd been living with that in my in my mind, if you like, as the answer to what's my motivation, um, over five years as I developed the screenplay. So it didn't exist in the screenplay, but it existed pretty much in my head. I was a pretty experienced writer, though not a fiction, so I could move pretty swiftly. Um, so that went remarkably smoothly. The, the main structural challenge was that because I chose to write in first person, 
I had to get rid of any scenes that didn't have Don in them. So that 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 actually changed the logic of the story. Not a huge amount, but it meant I had to do things in, in different ways. So there's, there's certain types of comedy, for example, that rely on the audience knowing things that the characters playing out the scene don't know um and that's easily done sometimes when you when you can go and see both both parties to the conflict or to the to the scene individually getting briefed and then you see them together um i couldn't do that of course because don can't see what the other characters are doing so moving into first person changed the logic a bit uh, i made the the plot a little more complex um just because i had more pages and time to do it in but that went that went reasonably smoothly. And then going back to the screenplay, well, I had it in place. Um, and really it was more that as I wrote the novel, you have more ideas, you have more insights. So I was writing with a, an even clearer idea of what I was doing as I went back. It's been an unusual road to publication for you. What advice do you have for students currently involved in the course that you did here at RMIT? Work hard. Um, and I, I don't say that facetiously. Um, and I don't say it as a way of showing off either. But probably the biggest thing I learned from my previous career was that it really does take a long time to get genuine expertise at something. So I had specialist skills in information technology, and it took me many years to get to a point where I could say I was world-class or whatever, an expert. And, and you, if you're going to get a novel published, you are in an even more competitive world than being a, a database designer or something like that, or a neurosurgeon for that matter. That's the example I use. You know, people say, so I would say to them, Think that instead of learning to be a writer, you're learning to be a neurosurgeon. Think of how much work you would need to put in in order to get there. And the truth is, almost none of my fellow students were putting in that level of work. And I'm, I'm not blaming them. People have family commitments, they have other stuff, but they also watch television and do all sorts of, um, of optional things. I didn't watch television while I was studying, except to you know, for learning purposes. So I'd sit down with the DVDs and say, I am studying Breaking Bad to see how many changes there are in a scene and all that sort of thing and how the trick is done. But I wasn't just you know, vegging out. I didn't do much vegging out while I was doing it. I've been working with um, one of my fellow students um, over the last year or so, giving her some feedback on a book that she had in progress. And she gets up, I think, at five o'clock every morning, and she, she's done so many redrafts of this book. She has done so much work. And I kept saying to her, you will get a publishing contract. And she got rejected the first time and was pretty disappointed. Second publisher, she's in. She'll be published, um, she'll be published early next year or sometime next year. So my my experiences you know, when people complain that it's too tough it's all that sort of thing the first question is you know, have you done the 10,000 hours and probably more and if the answer is no it's well come back when you have because you know when you've done the hours that you'd expect a neurosurgeon to do then you can reasonably start saying I'm earn I've earned a place in this game that's great advice now your wife is also a writer must be a pretty mm. intense and collaborative experience in your household yeah, that's, those are good words for it. Um, we've just had a very intense and collaborative weekend because she's had the edits back um, for, from her book. And she went through and did all the edits and she said, you want to have a look at this? And I said, yep. And that was six weeks ago. <laughs> we've been working on it most days. And, and you know, it's, I'm just playing editor. Um, I'm not the creative input to this. That, that happened earlier. Earlier, the two of us would kick around plot and so forth. But I'm just being an editor and saying every sentence, you know, could this be better? I think you've got word repetition happening here. That that doesn't seem precise. I got lost here. So just all that annoying stuff that, and you know, she gets a, 
she's not happy with me every moment of this process, but we managed to get to the end of the day, have a glass of wine and sort of debrief, and she's just taken into the publisher today. So um, we do work together, and she's fantastic input to me now. Um, I used to rely a lot on my writer's group, but it's very hard to go to a writer's group and say, look, I've got a million-dollar advance. Can you give me a hand with this <laughs> this thing I'm working on? I'd say so. You do elaborate, and you do talk a little bit about who inspired Professor Don Tillman. Can you tell us a little bit about your friend who inspired the character? Well, let me say, let me let me answer the question broadly first, because this is really important. And people who don't write don't get this very often. Inspired is a huge difference from copied, is, and so forth. So, I was inspired to write about Don Tillman by one particular friend and his story. And his voice also inspired Don Tillman's voice. But that just meant it planted the seed. I then drew on a lot of other people I know. Um, I, they say a character is a third, someone you know. I would say several people you know. A third yourself and a third you make up. Um, but casual readers are all too quick to say, ah, so there's a real Don Tillman. What's he really like? And so forth. The answer is no, there's no real Don Tillman out there. Um, there are things that have inspired it. I mean, you, you've read The Rosie Effect, um, for example. There's a character in there um, called uh, called The Prince who's got a drug habit. And th his story was inspired by another friend who I reconnected him with after about 30 years of you know, a childhood friend who'd been out of work for a very long time because of because of that and was now getting him, himself back on. So th that little incident, that scene is inspired by that. The, the the drummer is inspired by a, you know, another friend of mine, but but inspired. They wouldn't recognise themselves on the page. No, they'd, they'd recognise elements, though. Being being friends with a writer, there's always a chance well, you'll end up in one of their books. Well, you know what? It's the other way round. What actually happens is if you take something that's absolutely explicit, so this whole thing about this guy taking LSD and getting hooked and that sort of thing, which is not the usual thing with LSD, but um, was almost taken directly from life. And I showed it... To the, to the friend, didn't recognise it, even though he told me that story. So maybe I'd heard it a little differently, maybe he sees it on the page, it doesn't match. And then you've got other people. I have had five or six people come to me who are relatives of people who used to work with me and say, you based on Tillman on my brother slash husband, you know, accusatory. You say, well, actually, he wasn't even in my mind. <laughs> I mean, there's one chap whose name is Don. And I thought, I said, if I was going to base it on him, there's no way I would have called him Don, okay? They're probably just trying to tap into a success. Well, thank you very much, Graeme Simpson, and good luck with the Rosie effect. I hope thank it you does very much. as well as the Rosie Project. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Elizabeth.